1989, I arrived in Chicago for the first time on a road to discovering my new home. 30 years later, I'm leaving Chicago for the desert. I'm Don Hall. Welcome to Peculiar Journeys. I said it gonna set my soul, gonna set my soul on fire. Got a whole lot of money that's ready to burn, so get those stakes up higher. There's a thousand pretty women waiting out there. They're all living the devil may care. And I am just a devil with love to spare, so viva Las Vegas. Working in a casino just off the strip means I run into a lot of odd types. It also means I'm pretty much prohibited from responding with my own views on politics when guests decide it's time to discuss their own. He's a middle-aged white guy playing Keno for a few hours at 50 cents a bet. I ask how he's doing and if he needs anything. He says he needs the air conditioning turned up because it's 107 degrees outside and he can't take it today. He starts talking about the science behind the weather and for a while we are in complete agreement. He touches on climate science accurately in my view. He talks about the tectonic plates in California with a perspective that indicates he knows a few things about geological science. He waxes on about our slow descent into a garbage planet. Then. The fucking liberals want this green deal and they just don't care about raising my taxes or what it would take to implement such a mess. Thank God Hillary Clinton lost that election. At least President Trump is a businessman and understands that things have to be paid for. I feel myself disembody and float somewhere above the two of us now given the constraints of the job instead of launching into a litany of what the fuck are you thinking and let me school you on the facts i am required to listen in listening i have to hear this dude's worldview a part of my job is to make him comfortable enough to keep playing because after all casino exists solely to take his money from him so i ask questions and listen Mike is a regular. I see him almost every day. He's a contractor. He comes in for lunch and plays the bar poker machines, usually the one on the far end corner. He's a nice guy. Always has a good story or two. Hey, Don. They all sound the same to me. Don, come here. I want to show you this. He holds up his phone and shows me a picture of a chrome-plated pistol that looks so ridiculously oversized and monstrous. At first, I think it's a drawing, and it's not. This one is so big, I may, be, I may only get the fired at the range. When would you fire it otherwise? You never know. Next time I go to Seattle, I'm bringing it. Why Seattle? You read what the liberals have done to that place? Homeless hippies everywhere, overrunning the local businesses. It's like an infestation of fucking social justice assholes who don't understand the basics of hygiene. Crime has gone through the roof. The cops can't touch them, you know, because, uh, you know, they might get YouTubed. My brain goes into a tailspin of gun control, the reasons for rampant homelessness in the country, and videos of police brutality. But I say nothing. And listen. Most of them don't lead with their right-wingness. I've never seen anyone in the casino with a MAGA hat or a Trump t-shirt on. They appear to be just like anyone else. Often as I engage them, the views are benign and interesting, but somehow they somehow get around some nugget of Trumpsterism. And I'm always a little surprised when a Latino guy suddenly pivots and reveals he's a hardcore Republican. But I'm getting used to it. 
You aren't one of those Obama people, are you? Obama people? You said you used to work for NPR. Are you one of those Obama was a great president kind of guys? I did vote for him twice, so I guess I am. Fucking Obama. No offense, but what the hell were you thinking? Oh, shit. An invitation. I reined myself in. So why don't you like Obama? The common thread is not bigotry, not white supremacy, not xenophobia. The thing that binds these casino dwellers ideologically is simply a base disgust with liberals. They hate us. They hate our condescension, our moralizing, our expectations that they should have to pay for our comfort or ideas. If I ask the right questions, I find that while we don't see eye to eye on a host of things, most of them aren't the monsters the rage profiteers paint them out to be. Well, why, why don't you like Obama? He tried to take our guns, and that time when he went around apologizing for being American was just too much. Hmm. What? That's just not how I saw his presidency. I saw a decent man who did his best to govern our country at a time when the economy was in tatters, when we were at war with an idea rather than a country, who was well, just trying to make sure everyone had health care and food. I can't imagine that things are easy. He wasn't even American. He was born in Kenya. Does that matter? So you admit he wasn't American? No, just curious as to why that matters one way or another. I'd love to say I changed his mind, but I was no more successful at changing his mind than I've been at changing Dave Colon's mind, as he states with no irony that if Trump wins again in 2020, it means that Americans are just in favor of bigotry. I'd love to say that I'm finding people of all stripes who are looking for some common ground rather than seeking out at every occasion some reason to be enraged or argue the minutiae in order to win the conversation, but I'm not. I'm finding that despite opposing worldview, I'm more inclined to be more polite in person than I am online. My willingness to listen and respond with a bit more care is heightened in real life than on the internet. Online, People are all becoming dogmatists and assholes, and I'm seeing everyone start to see the world as Trump seems to, a sea of theoretical people. I'm finding that my intolerance for these strident moralists on both sides are almost exactly the same. Each one believes without almost any evidence that the other is out to get him, that the only way through this forest of misunderstanding and vitriol is to burn it down, that this is truly a fight of good versus evil, and they are on the right side of things, and I find that attitude to be that of brainwashed and overtly religious people. It's a sorry circumstance to see those activists on the left in the same category as the alt-right because I agree with most of what the virtue signals are fighting for. I just can't get behind the fact that they're fighting for the right things the wrong way without a sense of rationality, compassion, humility, and honor. They're fighting like Trump and his ilk, and at the end of the story, what you accomplish is only colored by how you got it done. Working in a casino has its ups and downs. Meeting people of differing points of view has not been a negative one. third or fourth day at the wild wild west gambling hall and hotel i was 
obviously still in training and I'd been assigned my first day shift, 5.30 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. The casino was pretty empty with a few hangers on from the graveyard shift, still drinking or well past drunk, playing slots or blackjack. Now for clarity, the casino at the Wild Wild West is small. A sportsbook area with 10 TVs, 25 seats and three bedding windows, a small bar that seats about 20 each with a poker machine embedded in the bar, and a slots area with roughly 170 games. For, for a sense of scale, Palace Station, which is the big uh, one of the bigger uh, stations, casinos, has 4,690 slot games and five full bars. Yes, I am the Ace Rothstein of the Days In. The surrounding area is uh, is roughly around, it's rough around the edges. It's, you know, it's a little downtrodden. And while just a block off the strip, the clientele is comprised of locals, guests of the adjoining Days Inn, and truck drivers utilizing the attached truck plaza and expansive truck parking available across the street. As I understand it, there are hookers at almost every casino in Vegas, but we get the bargain basement version of the world's oldest profession. Excuse me. I turn around and there she was. Her skin was so black it was almost shimmery and beautiful. She wore a pair of pink micro shorts and a teal top that demonstrated her ample chest. On her head was a pink kitty cat hat complete with fuzzy ears. And her eyes looked like a bloodshot version of the globes uh, on the children of the corn. She was high as a kite. Can you give me some money? She half croaked, half purred. I didn't really do a purr there, but you get the point. Now, there are true, a few truly forbidden things on a casino floor, but soliciting anyone for money is right there at the top of the list. I'm sorry, darling, but you got to go. I can't allow you to solicit here in the, the casino. She mumbled some protest under her breath, but started for the door. She knew the drill. As she approached the exit, she spun around with an energy she had yet to demonstrate and shrieked, You fired! You fired! I fired you! You fired! Then she walked out of the establishment, her held head high. Yes, I was fired by a crack whore at 5.30 a.m. in Las Vegas. My bucket list is now complete. time I was hired by the casino, I'd pretty much divested myself of any desire to blend back into the public radio lifestyle. That said, before we moved out here, I had been hired to come out to San Diego and co-teach a workshop for the National Federation of Community Media on optimizing your brand with events in June. So after two weeks of casino training, I flew out to California, got set up in a nice room, and mingled in San Diego for two days before teaching the class. I passed out cards, and I touted my freelance consulting skills, but most of the community media crowd were more interested in my casino job. Drinks were bought to ply stories of my two weeks of training, and of course I made it sound like I'd been, been you know, doing this for years. It was overcast and chilly in San Diego, but I made the best of it, smoking my pipe on the edge of the bay and buying a six-pack of local beers to bring to my room while I sat and wrote on my iPad and watched the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on the big plasma TV. By the time we got to the workshop, I was ready for it. The workshop was sizable, and I put my iPhone on the podium to catch some of the class. Here's just a little bit of the class. I'll give you the quick rundown uh, so you have an idea of who I am and 
why or why not you should listen to anything I have to say. Um, my career started in the late 80s. I was a Chicago Public School 7th and 8th grade music teacher for a decade. Then I ran a not-for-profit theater. I was the executive director and producer of an off-loop theater in Chicago. I was in Iron in 2007 by Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me to be the house manager and subsequently the director of events for WBEZ in Chicago. They had no events department at all, and so I got 10 years to create one. Um, and then recently I went kind of rogue. During that time I was the host of The Moth in Chicago for about five years. Uh, went rogue, produced events for Amazon and Pepsi and Cards Against Humanity and yada, yada, yada. And recently just moved to Las Vegas, Nevada, and I now work as a casino manager. So, um, I would appreciate if you call my career path eclectic rather than haphazard, and that's me. That's kind of that's who I am. The most important key for you probably is the WBEZ time. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the philosophy of events. You'll probably get more into the specifics of the logistics of events. But one of the things that I notice, as I, because I've done a, a number of these kinds of talks to public radio stations, large and small, over the country, and one of the things that I notice is that everybody's running a marathon, but everybody thinks they're sprinters. And if you know anything about running, either a marathon or sprinting, what you realize is sprinting for 26 miles is not running a marathon. It's, that's not it. And what I notice in most event strategies across the country for public media, specifically for public media, is that we're all sprinting. We're going to do one event and see how well it does. And if it doesn't do great, we don't do events for a while. But that's not a strategy. Now, one of the things that I, I if there's anything I can say that I think fits the optimizing your brand through events, is if your brand is parties, awesome. Then you're doing great. You're having drinks, you're having food, you're getting high donors. Then your brand is parties. But if that's not your brand of your station, don't sprint. Don't focus on those as an events strategy. The marathon is creating a series of events over a long amount of time. And the question of how to do that is probably at forefront of everybody's mind. So I will say that, that if there's anything that I can say, that you walk away and go, yeah, Don Hall talked a lot and fast, but what he said that I remember is that events are content. They are content. And what your events do and how your audience experiences them is how they experience the content of that moment. That's how it connects. The second thing I'll tell, and this is sort of reductive, um, but in a reductive way, there are only three reasons. Your chair's right up here, and you, trust me, I don't awesome. I move around a lot, but I don't bite. Um, at least not you, my wife maybe. Um, uh, there are three reasons you do an event, period. I mean, you can kind of reduce it down. There's stewardship, and stewardship is, let's reward our existing patrons. Let's say thank you for being a part of this. Let's put you in the same room with some of us. That's stewardship. There's recruitment. Let's get those people that are already patrons to bring the friends who are not patrons and are not listeners. Let's get those people in a room and let them see what we do and how we do it. And then there's commerce. And everybody knows about commerce because that seems to lead everybody's mindset. 
It's like talking to theater people. All they really want to talk about is marketing. So I get it. I get it. Those are the three reasons. And what I will say is every single event you do is going to have all three of them embedded in that. But one has to be the most important. You have, and this is before you even start planning. Sit down and figure out, is this primarily a stewardship event? Is it primarily a recruitment event? Or is it primarily a fundraiser? And then that's the top. And every decision that you make, how they get there, where do they park, um, what programming are they going to see, how long is it going to be, every aspect has to filter first through that first thing. If it's a fundraiser, every, and it, it makes us feel gross. I, you know, on some level, we're public media. But if you really break it down, public media's entire commerce model is absolutely no different than drug dealers which is we're going to give it to you for free and eventually we're going to ask you for money for it. Uh. That is basically public media. So, and I know it makes everybody feel gross when you say it, but the fact is when you talk to your CEOs and your CFOs, what are they talking about? They're about money. You're not about money, you're about people. So there has to be a bridge between those two, but part of it is just recognizing exactly what the model is. So figure out what, if you're doing a fundraising event, everything has to be, how do we separate dollars from pockets? If it's stewardship, how do we make the people that listen to us now feel appreciated? And if it's recruitment, how do we get those people that don't listen or don't donate to come into the family every single day? Now I'll say that producing a single, and most of you, if you produce single events, you know what a pain in the ass they are. It's a pain. It's a logistic nightmare sometimes. I will say that every event is no different than anything else. It's just like producing a podcast or a, a morning drive show. There are pieces to the puzzle. Each piece fits together. It's your job to figure out which pieces fit, how those pieces fit together. It's real simple. And I always say when you're producing an event, to produce backwards. In other words, you start your planning at the day you do your final reporting. And then you move backwards. Okay, so what happens before that? Well, we gotta strike this up. We gotta get the equipment back to the station or wherever we rented it. We've gotta get things cleaned up. We've gotta make sure the vendor's paid. Okay, now, let's step now to the event. Now let's step to this. If you produce backwards initially, you have a timeline that you can live with so that you're not at that last minute going, ah, oh, we totally forgot this. If you produce backwards, you know exactly how long it's gonna take you to get all of this stuff done. I mean, not exact. It's not an exact science. You know, but that is one thing. So that's a single event. Creating a strategy is different. Creating a strategy, and I will tell you that from my experience, um, especially with, with WBEZ, it takes probably 10 consistent events over, to, over a period of time to get people to buy into an event's strategy. Otherwise, because what they're used to is Here's a concert. Here's a thing we're doing. Here's a panel discussion. They're individual portions. It's a la carte. You know? And what you want, ultimately, at least if you're creating a, a long-term event strategy, is you want, oh, what are you doing next week? What's that station that I listen to doing? Because they know that there's going to be consistent amount of events that are coming over. And it's always interesting. 
it's always on brand. It's the kind of thing that they they listen to your station for a very specific reason. They don't listen to it because of the you know the, they don't listen to it because you give them mugs. They don't listen to that. They listen to you for your content, for the stuff that you put out into the world. That's why they're there. So why not have your events give them a bit more of that, but in a live setting? I'm trying to think of anything else. I'm trying to. I, I really tried to compress this so that I would not go over 15 minutes, which makes me happy. You're doing really well with time. That's what I like. Um, so I guess the I don't know if the last thing I'll say, but I will say one of the things that, and this is how casinos. I thought about this last night. How being a casino manager somehow applies to you. <laughs> And I realized is one of the things that I know is that what we tend to see when it comes to public media, the transactional model, and, and for events, seems to be very simple. We sell tickets, or we provide a drive, or whatever, you give us money, we take your money, thank you. We'll give you a thank you, give that kind of stuff. And most CEOs and CFOs see events exactly like that. How many people came? How much did you charge for tickets? How much did you spend? This is our profit. There is your return of investment. Were you successful or failed based on that? But it's far more complicated than that. One of the things I've learned as a casino manager is everybody that comes into a casino gets a player card. You've ever been to a casino, they, give, they want you to sign up for a player's card. And if you're a player, you think it's because you're gonna get you know, points and free cigarettes and you know, free stuff and free play. What it is really for now that I'm behind the curtain at the casino is it is a metric for me to know exactly how much you have spent and lost in my casino. And I might have, what's your name? Craig. Craig, Craig might come to my casino, maybe this is his fourth time he's got a player's card. It's the fourth time in two months. In 60 days, I know that Craig today is $200 up. He's feeling great about his chances. He's the luckiest son of a bitch on the floor right now. Except I can go into my computer and I can see that over the course of the last four times he's been there, he's lost $4,000, <clears> which is profit for the casino. So it is in my benefit to keep him playing. So he gets comp drinks. He gets free play. He gets treated like a king. He is a part of our family. That's how the casino business works. That is not vastly different than how public media works. And if you look at it from a long-term strategy, whose country, one of the things I know, and it took us a long time to get there, again, it's marathon. At WBEZ, one of the big refrains was we need metrics. We need to know if you're bringing in any kind of long-term money. So we instituted some programs, some protocols to figure out how many people that came to our events over a certain number of events eventually, that were not members of the station, eventually donated and became members of the events. And it took a long time. And it was more work than I wanted to do, but it ultimately paid off. Is by the time I left, we had a 35% retention rate. That 35, roughly, I mean, uh, roughly 35% of the people that a year before, and we had to do it in year increments because there was no other way to track it, a year before people that had never donated to WBEZ, had never been a part of the station, their entry point to the station was an event. 
and there's a lot of surveys we had to do. But I, I do not like paper surveys, I'll just let you know. It is in their face. Again, that's your customer experience. If you have to stop and fill out a 10-page survey, they're not having a good time. They feel invaded, so you have to find different ways to get that information. When you get that information, it's codified, it's, you know, you got it. Ultimately, at the end of the day, what we can, we can pretty accurately prove that from first event, a year later, after coming to several events, they became donors, we had about a 35% retention rate, which Dr. John Cohn in LA will tell you is pretty damn good. I mean, that's, that's pretty high stuff. So that's the benefit of a long-term strategy. A long-term strategy is not, I'm putting on a gala, which you all know, the big gala things, you spend far more money than you ever make, every time no matter how good you are at it. So if that's not the model, I will suggest part of the long term is kind of a few of those. By the time I left, 75% of our events, and we did that last year, we did 137 events for a total audience of about 300,000. 75% were either free or a $5 ticket price for members, $10 to the public, had less than 300 people capacity for the audience. 25% were, okay, now we're bringing Ira Glass and we're gonna charge $200 a ticket. I justified the 75% with the revenue from the 25% and it worked pretty well for a while. You know, it's, it's, and then eventually, the CEO of WBDZ decided that she didn't care about the 75% as much, she just wanted the 25%, which makes sense because that's what a CEO and a CFO does. They want to make money. But it's the difference between, and it puts you in a position where you've got to commit to selling the idea of those long term, of selling the idea of the small 10 person event that is completely on brand versus which I noticed in Nevada Public Radio, and that's, you know, I, I've met with them, talked to them, I'm working with them on their 40th anniversary, but their whole model, their entire events model, is let's have Cirque du Soleil give us tickets that we can then sell, which doesn't mean they're producing events. They're not. They're ticket brokers. And Cirque du Soleil is not on brand for them. Cirque du Soleil is a totally different brand. They control the content, you go to see them, you go, oh, I got my tickets through KMPR. But it's not KMPR event, so don't fool yourself in it, because I know a lot of people are like, oh yeah, we'll do media sponsorships. That's not your event. It's a total, that's a sponsorship or ticket broking. Totally different things from actually producing or in the whole social media thing. It's one of the mistakes. I've worked with a couple of companies, uh, large charities in, in the United States. <coughs> Um, one of the things that I think is, uh, when it comes to social media, is that it seems easy. And so we throw up the easy crap. Here's the thing, if you want, and I, I, there's two things I'll tell you. Five Guys Hamburgers, everybody know Five Guys Hamburgers? Mm -hmm. Okay, when that guy started Five Guys Hamburgers, one of the franchise deals is that they're not allowed to spend any of their money on marketing. That was the founder's idea, was that if you gave them great burgers with great fries and great service, the customer would be your marketing. Whether that's a realistic thing, it certainly worked for Five Guys Hamburgers, you know? I mean, and I really love that idea. 
what it boils down to is the same thing, in my opinion, in my experience with social media, is that if you create, and that if you, you mentioned be creative, and I, what I've always noticed, and I notice this a lot, is that be creative is, tends to be like bottom of the pile when we talk about it, but your public media, all you really have is creative. That's what you got. That's your, that's, I mean, that's your diamond, is that you're creative. So why is it that so often we do the same thing we've seen everybody else do? And so what I, I always recommend when it comes to using public media is, first of all, know the public media. If you don't have an Instagram account, you have no business doing anything on Instagram. If you don't have a Facebook account, then leave it alone because you don't know what you're doing. But I'll say no matter what the platform is, it's all of the things about I, I just want to comment because it's one of the things that I notice a lot is like how many people have like an actual budget for your events, like a significant budget. Oh, yeah, I know, exactly. That's why I asked that question very specifically. This is one of the, because I, I love all of his examples and we've done at WBEZ, we did a lot of, of larger events. If you don't have a budget, it seems remarkably difficult. It seems overwhelming. One of the things that I learned in the 10 years doing at WBEZ is that small and niche has as much power as big and popular. And I'll give you an example. Um, this was, oh God, I don't even know how many years this goes, but uh, I realized, and I'm not a reporter. I don't even know what the manual of style is, right? Well, I'm informed by one of my reporters, you know it's the manual of style. They're, they're, they're releasing a new edition of the manual of style, which is what apparently all reporters read and use for their style. I don't know. But I went, all right, this is not something I'm into, but okay. So I reached out to those guys and I thought, you know, okay, maybe I'm gonna get 200 people that are gonna pay $10 to see the editors of the Manual of Style because, you know, it's niche. I mean, maybe I'll get all my reporters, you know, I'll comp them and they'll come in. Well, once we announced that we were gonna do it, that we were gonna actually have the editors of the Manual of Style, we just kind of put it out as a teaser. It wasn't an ad campaign. It literally was just a teaser on a blog post so much interest came in. Ultimately, what we ended up doing was booking the University of Chicago, a 1,500-seat auditorium. We got the bells and whistles with giant screens because so many people wanted to see it that my uh, CEO said, yeah, go ahead and make it sexy. So we made sure that nobody could stand up and ask questions on the microphone because that always invites just comments. So we made sure the only way you could actually ask questions was via Twitter. And we had my volunteers all had smartphones set up to the Twitter so anybody that didn't have a smartphone or didn't know how to use it could ask questions that way. And it was a huge success, totally niche. We've done uh, comic book events uh, for 300 people. We did a thing, uh, Ragdale is a, a women's writers group in Chicago, just outside of Chicago. And we decided we wanted to have an event that celebrated them. And so again, 15 bucks ticket, $10 for members. Um, 300 seat auditorium that we got. We got three artists. We, we dress it. I always say, again, in being in creative, if your event is just people sitting and talking, be more creative. Create some dazzle camouflage because they could listen to that on the radio. Give them something to look at. Give them something that, it, that is, so you do that. But we did that and what I didn't realize, again, I'm not a sports guy. So I didn't realize that I had scheduled this Ragdale women's writing group event on Super Bowl on Sunday. Bowl Sunday. Oh. I, I had no idea because I didn't know it's Super Bowl. And my birthday usually is February 3rd. It's usually a, so it didn't even occur to me. I thought, oh, we're dead in the water. 
turns out there were 300 people that were more interested in women writers than they were the Super Bowl. And they paid $15 and they showed up and it was packed. Niche and small can equal like a huge music festival. You can do both, but if you don't have any budget, do the small niche and you will end up building up your credibility. When I started at WBEZ, I had a $30,000 budget and I got to do five events. When I left, I had a $250,000 budget. You can build it, but again, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Now, I don't want you to walk away thinking that all of my casino stories are about negative experiences. Uh, a good 80% of the job of a casino manager is talking to players, finding things out about them, helping them relax and enjoy themselves, getting them to continue gambling. A casino, after all, like I said, exists to take your money. And the more you dig the surroundings, the more comfortable you are, the more you gamble. One of the tools at our disposal is the player's card. Now, here's the deal. You sign up with a player's card, you always get a few bucks in free play to get you started. The idea from a player's end is that as you play, you accrue points, and those points can then be later redeemed for cash, cigarettes, booze, gas, hotel discounts, whatever. The idea from the casino's perspective is that then we can know exactly how much you play, when you're gambling, which slots you prefer, and can take notes about things we find out about you, that you're from Chicago, or you only drink ginger ale, or you have a dog, whatever. It's a transaction just underneath the transaction of gambling, and as all things casino, it favors the house. As I mentioned, there's a truck plaza, and it's, it, and it's very distinct in Vegas because it's the only casino hotel with a truck plaza. And, uh, and it actually makes quite a bit of money uh, every year, but we end up having an influx almost every single day of truckers from all over the country who park because it's, it's one of the few places you can just pay $12 to park your entire you know, rig with your giant, you know, your cab and your 18 wheels. It's that place. And so we get a lot of truckers. And one day, this was uh, an afternoon shift, you know, I'm walking around, I'm saying hello to people. And, you know, one of the things that I notice, you can notice um, when you walk around and you look at the players playing slots specifically, you can see, are they playing with a player card? How much are they playing? Um, you know, what they're drinking, I mean, all that kind of stuff. And I see this kind of heavy set, ready kind of looking got dude. Doesn't look too old. He's probably, he looks like he's about 45. And I walk over and I, and he's not playing with the player's card. I see you're not playing with the player's card. You just, giving cigarettes away you want me to just go buy some cigarettes for you and then throw them out on the you know the tarmac out there and he's like what, what, what players i don't I, yeah I, I, I never got a player's card i was like give me your idea i'll get you a player's card so i did his name was mike he was from pennsylvania and he was part of a legacy of movers uh, his family as he explained it was uh, uh one of the oldest family-owned movers in the country and because he was Pennsylvania, I you know, said, well, my wife's from Pennsylvania. My in-laws live in Harrisburg and home PA. And uh, we, so we talk a little bit about Pennsylvania. We talk about that connection. Um, we laugh a lot. We make jokes uh, you know, about traveling on the road. We talk about, I talk to him a little bit about my moving experience here to Vegas. He talks a little bit about that concept of 10% breakage, all that kind of stuff. So we get along. I let him play. 
probably three hours later. And at this point, uh, Mike is gone. Mike is, I don't know where Mike is. Uh, what turns out, he ended up going over to the Denny's and having some dinner. And he was going to come back and gamble, but I didn't know that. And I get called over to the bar by a guy named Tony. And Tony wants to ask me why we don't have any live dealers anymore. Well, I wasn't here when they had live dealers, but I understand the story. So I explain, well, the, the live dealers, they weren't making as much money. And so they put in these giant blackjack roulette and craps machines. And the machines just do better. People would rather, you know, we talk a little bit about the fact that maybe people just would rather not interact with real human beings. That they'd rather, just like their phones, interact with a machine. Um, that some people feel like the machines are more fair than the potential of having a live person cheat. You know, it's all this kind of stuff. And so we're having this conversation. And then I met, and he's a mover. He had one point in the conversation, he mentions, I ask him what he does for a living. And he is a mover. He's from Los Angeles and he's been a mover his whole life. And I say, wow, that's crazy because earlier in the day I met this guy named Mike and I say his last name and, and he and I talked about moving and he went, you know, Mike, you met Mike is here. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, he said, do you know where he's at? I said, I don't. And I said, but if I see him, um, I'll mention, because uh, he apparently knows Mike and hasn't seen him for years. Um, in fact, what he what he tells me is he knows Mike from when they were like 13 years old. They grew up together and uh, he worked for Mike's family business before he moved out to L.A. So they, they've known each other since they were kids. And so just about that time, probably 10 minutes after having the conversation, I see Mike coming out of the Denny's. And I said, Mike, Mike, dude, I think I met a friend of yours. And I point him out to, to Tony. And these two guys, it's like it was, it was very almost moving. It's like they hadn't seen each other probably in 20 years. And, you know, I'd lost touch. And they, you could just see they were so pleased. And they just embraced and were laughing. And so, you know, I got them around of drinks. And they just sat. And then at two different moments that later that evening, both Mike and Tony in different different times came up to thank me for reconnecting them and telling me both of them had a story about when they were kids. And both of them were just thrilled about reconnecting with someone they hadn't seen since they were kids. And it you know, and, and that is ultimately, I think, one of the things I, I truly enjoy about this job is that it is about people. It's about telling stories. It's about hearing their stories and it's about finding some kind of connection. It's never happened since and may, may never happen again. But what I really enjoy about this job is 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 exactly that. Um, I'm just now getting to the point where the other day I'm realizing that the locals, and this is something about Las Vegas that I think is kind of important, is this is a town of transients. If you work on the strip, you don't give a shit about any of those people because they're all from Iowa and they're leaving tomorrow. You're never going to see them again. But on the off-strip casinos, this is where the locals hang out. This is not the big tourist track. Sure, we get some tourists, but this is this is about the locals. And the, the local market is growing um, bigger every year. Uh, there's 2.5 million people here in Las Vegas, and the, the prediction is that they'll be at 3 million people like in two years. I mean, people are really moving here just like Dana and I did. And what I like about that is, that, and, and as I've been there, is that people treat you. They, 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 they kind of dismiss you outright at first 
primarily because you're just another number. You're probably a tourist. They don't know if you're sticking around. They don't know if you're now local, but it's obvious that you're not from here. After about two months of working in the casino, and this was just yesterday, um, I'm on shift, and all of a sudden I recognize that many of the locals, many of the players and regulars at the Wild Wild West have kind of, guess, come around to the idea that I'm not going anywhere, that I'm sticking around, that I'm a part of the firmament of their experience at the Wild Wild West, and they know me, and they want to talk to me, and so I spent the entire day having you know 30 minute conversations about fishing boats about football which i have no information about about uh movies uh, you know i talked at length with a couple who used to be from chicago have been living in vegas for 18 years he's got an eye patch i've never asked him about the eye patch but they're just playing slots after work they're just having a good time and they're talking about once upon a time in in, a, in hollywood and they haven't seen it but they're thinking about seeing it and we talked a little bit about that we talked about marvel comic books and this is what the casino gig is and and i understand on one level yes i understand that my job as a casino manager other than you know managing the staff making sure they have what they need um and and in part making sure that all of the guests are comfortable and stick around and play as much as they possibly can because that's why a casino exists as i said i don't really lead with that in my mind in fact that's never it never crosses my mind. I'm talking to these people as a way to make them stay. They're very interesting. They find me interesting. We have great times, great stories. And uh, if there's anything I really love about this casino job is that I'm meeting people from everywhere, but mostly people from Las Vegas. And I'm getting to know the flavor of the people. And I think I'm becoming a part of that vibe. And that is Peculiar Journeys for this week. Two weeks, we'll have some more casino stories. Um, I'm going to try. I don't know if I'll be able to get to because it's a little dicey recording people on a casino floor. Um, they kind of discourage anything like that. So uh, I'll see if I can't get some actual people telling stories. If not, I'll have some more stories. And thank you so very much for listening. Cost me my very last dime. If I wind up broke, well, I'll always remember that I had a swing in time. I'm gonna give it up. Peculiar Journeys is a storytelling podcast. For previous seasons, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or online at donhall.vegas/slash podcast. To support Peculiar Journeys, please review the show on Apple Podcasts, share it with your friends or on social media, or go to patreon.com slash peculiarjourneys and become a VIP patron by tossing me a few bucks. Thanks for listening.